Hello and a massive welcome uh, back to the Holtcast. As usual, I'm James Rushton, but today I'm not actually joined by Danny Riser, who's away uh, gallivanting, doing whatever after Villa lost to Norwich. But instead, I think I'm joined by an upgrade man, uh, if I do say so myself. It's uh, Matt Lynch. How you doing, mate? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Thank you. It's good to be. I wouldn't sound quite the upgrade, and I think <laughs> Dan might be offended by that, but I'll take it. No, I'll just sack him off because he's not around today. But yeah, uh, he is uh, preoccupied today. So uh, why not extend the mic and the uh, hand of Villa friendship to someone new? And uh, Matt Lynch, you've been around, mate. You've been uh, on a Villa fan. You've been on Reed Aston Villa and of course, the uh, world famous Villa View. Uh, How are things going for you right now? Yeah, they're they're really good to be honest. It's the first period in like five years. I've not really done too much to do with Villa. So it feels really weird to not be as heavily involved. But yeah, it's all good. Thank you. Really good. So still keep track of all the work that all the Villa sites do. Read a lot of articles still from all of them. And they seem to be killing it. And you yourself, 7500 Hall is doing really well with the podcast as well. So it's good to be here. Yeah, um, we try and do a bit more. You know, we want to focus on other Villa sites. Because I think there was a period of time, maybe when we were still in the Premier League, when all the Villa sites seem to be at each other's throats. So uh, I've tried to extend the hand of friendship, tried to feature more work, provide links such, you know, to match reports in our like, roundup or post-mortem, which I started to do. So yeah, it's good to see everyone's kind of positive, I guess. But yeah, uh, we will focus on the Reading match first, mate, because it was an actual win. You know, Villa actually won a game and it seems, you know, I, I hate to be so negative almost, but we uh, beat Reading 3-0 on Tuesday. How do you feel that match went? Well, I think that the result perhaps hides some of the problems as such. I know that the second half was possibly one of the best ones we've had in recent weeks and months, so to speak, but the sending off helped it. There's no shadow of a doubt that helped the way we played our game. And I think that still the weaknesses were there and perhaps that had a knock-on impact for the next game as well, which I'm sure will come on so shortly. But yeah, I think that the first half was sluggish. Um, wasn't too much to say about it. And then the second half, we looked comfortable. Yeah, the sending off was uh, extremely strange. It was uh, a straight yellow, you know, when he hacked down Jack Grealish from behind. But then when he, to do the same thing to Biakir Bjarnason, who was retreating into his own half, it was uh, almost laughable. I think he threw the match away for Reading. They weren't competitive. Don't get me wrong, but, you know, being a man down, it's almost game over from that point, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's it's left a massive gaping hole, which obviously we exploited to some degree um, with where our goals come from in terms of the centre at the park. Most of the goals coming from there on uh, Tuesday evening. So it did throw the game in our favour. And to be honest, we did need that because we were struggling to break them down at times and that helped massively. The tempo of the game was really weird because, you know, you, ha- you have a lot of fans demanding you know, football on the front foot, you know, fast-paced attacking football, usually the counter-attack. Villa couldn't counter at all because Reading were completely unable to get the ball in our half. So you had this weird match where Villa almost just passing it around desperately in in a Reading's half, trying to get a goal. It was just complete dominance and it was a, almost an awkward amount of dominance because I, I think Villa looked almost, they did look really comfortable with the football, but I think the fans were kind of getting a bit edgy, you know, it, it did look like complete dominance. It did look like the scoreline should have been more than 3-0. I'm very happy with a 3-0. Don't get me wrong, because that's still a massive scoreline. But I think, uh, do you have any thoughts about anyone who may have thought, you know, that's a 5 or 6-0 game? Um, I think that you always open yourself to a degree of vulnerability with, when you're playing against 10 men, because you've got, as you say, all that possession. I think by the end of the game, it's something 80% possession or something ridiculous like that. When you've got that much possession of the ball, you do open yourself out for the counter-attack hugely. And when Reading have got two really pacey wingers in Aluko and Barrow, you're going to cause yourself problems if you do 
just throw the bucket at them, so to speak. And I think that the game management was right as well in terms of the substitutions at the points they were made. They they made sense for once in, in recent time. It seems to have been a guessing game, but it was the correct decisions on Tuesday. And from my perspective, 3-0, perfect scoreline, confidence boosting and all the rest of it. I was really happy with it. Um, I, I thought it would be a bit of a banana skin because Reading, you know, have uh, Paul Clement. And of course, Leo Bakuna was coming back to Villa Park. And you always think if a, a former player comes back, especially one who didn't always have the best reception at Villa Park, they have a platform to score. But I don't remember him touching the ball, mate. And I don't know if you saw, but he didn't seem to do anything. That being said, we had a man who seemed to pull all the strings and it was that man, Birkir Bjarnason, who hasn't had the best time at Villa. I think it's the cliche at this point where everyone goes, you know, he was going to be sold in January. In fact, he's come back and he's been a real big part of the Villa side. He was dropped against Hull because of the international break. he came come back in against Reading and he uh, ran the show. Any thoughts on him? I always defended him and I said to him that, I said about him that he needs to be given a position that suits his game plan. And he didn't play many games as such for Basel as a CDM, so to speak. But I think when you give him game time in a set position rather than throwing the base all over the place, I think he played left back, right back as a central attacking midfielder, as a left winger, as a right winger. You name it, he's played a position for Villa. So I think it's about him not being messed about. And when you do that, you find your feet a bit. If you're being asked to play different positions every week, you're never going to find any form, never. So it's really important that he found his spot. And I think he's the perfect energetic option as a CDM in comparison to Whelan or Yedmak, who are very similar players. To be honest, that offers a bit more legs in that midfield. I think his first goal was uh, tremendous. Uh, but afterwards, uh, everyone was telling him to shoot and he was really happy to pay that back with uh, launching some efforts into the whole end. But that first goal was magnificent, mate. Well-deserved, you think? Oh, hugely. Um, I, he's always had a few goals in his locker. You look at his previous goals for Barcelona, he scored some screamers. So I think we knew he had it in his locker. Um, the goal against Wolves was a bit of class as well. I know that it was more of a tap-in as such, but it was a toe-punt and knocking it past a few men. So it's been coming from him and he's found his feet good and proper. I take my hat off to him because it was a superb strike and I think it does go into the goal of the season category with only, have to say, only two or three other goals, to be honest. It was quite hard to defend him as well because I'm a Bjarnason fan. I uh, really did do push hard to defend him, but it's, it was quite hard to defend him because you see him being put in at all these odd positions, and he would, you know, he wouldn't have the best time. He, his first touch was lacking, and he looked genuinely uncomfortable. And I think we don't have time as fans to reflect on how the players feeling almost in that position. We just expect them to be deployed and do a job. And Bjarnason really wasn't able to do a job in any of those positions he was deployed in. I think left wing, he had a tiny bit of success. We saw him come in against Bristol City late on and he scored another goal. Um, but yeah, I'm, think, I'm glad we stuck with him, mate. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you'll agree. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think many fans forget when he came to Villa, he hadn't played a game for about 12 weeks. Um, and Steve Bruce chucked him under a bus and immediately chucked him into that team. And immediately... That possibly sets you back about three or four weeks of fitness just from the fact that you've you've not played for however many weeks and then all of a sudden you're thrown into the first team of a championship side where there's so much energy and physical presence about every team that you've got to try and basically hit those sort of peaks of fitness straight away, which was never fair on him. Of course, Conor Hurhan came back as well in uh, Villa's midfield and he uh, capped off with a headed goal. Is he a hit and miss player? A lot of people have come onto this theory now that he uh, has bad games and good games, but I've always seen him as a solid player for Villa. 
he he's one of those players that gets the ball moving. Um, he might not always contribute with a goal, but if you look around that pitch, he is that player that that makes the chances that that starts the moves. It might be from Acre in a pass to Chester just to open up the space a bit, or to Acre a ball forward to Snodgrass. Wherever he's playing the ball, he's always looking to create something. I don't think that he don't think he deserves the criticism he gets. Um, obviously, beat David Platnow in terms of goals for Villa from midfield position in one season. So it shows that he's got it in his locker. And at the end of the day, if he's scoring double figures goals from the midfield position, where to me he's had his shackles on for half the season still, then it's he's a quality player for me. He's a quality player. And of course, uh, Villa's uh, third goal on the night, the third goal we'll talk about at least, uh, against Reading midweek. It came from Scott Hogan and he hasn't, ha- he's another player who hasn't had the best time at Aston Villa despite bagging a few goals this season at least. Um, his goal was a uh, pretty poacher's instinct, weren't it? He pressed the keeper, won the ball and turned the keeper around and, and placed it past him. What do you think, what do you make of Scott Hogan so far? I I rate him, I do. I think that, his work rate is phenomenal and I think in his positioning is superb as well. And people may look at his stats and go, oh, he's only made this many touches in a game. But I'll ask you the question of where do you see him making those touches? And it's always in the final third. And I know to be a complete strike, you've got to be tracking back or whatever, but he does that as well. Um, I think that he's lacked the service this season at times. And I think that's been the main point against him. And I think whether he works as the one up top is the best option. I don't know either. Does he work better? if he's got the extra man with him. I remember him playing a few times with Kodja last season, very briefly before his injuries, and it wasn't working. But you have to look at these things and go, is it worth trying it, considering this run of form on at the moment, where we seem to be struggling to score in the first half more than anything as well. Yeah, we don't seem to get going much. And uh, what frustrates me loads is, of course, you know, have been the, having the benefit of being in the halt and then looking down on the football pitch, you can see the the runs Hogan's making and it's incredibly frustrating to see not one Villa player pick out these runs in behind. And if they do pick out, they'll try and go for the ball over the top, which isn't always going to work for someone of Hogan's stature. You know, despite the fact that he does go for these headers, he seems to hang in the air forever. But no one's picking out these runs, mate. And that, that looks real. that's really annoying to me. And especially Villa's midfield, it seems like someone should be able to put a through ball to Hogan. And it should be a goal. And it doesn't seem to ever happen. Yeah, I, I think that, as I just said there, the shackles have been on Conor Huran, for example, for large parts of this season where he's played in a more restrictive midfield role where he's had more responsibilities than perhaps he can contend with as a creative midfielder. At heart, he's a creative midfielder. He's not one that's going to sit back like you'd be honest. And he's someone that needs to be allowed more space to express himself. And Grealish is one that seems to link it well with Hogan in terms of finding the, the neat balls or the neat runs. And I think we need more of that. We need less restriction on these players. They need less sort of shackles on, so to speak. They need to be more expressive. And I think we can utilise him if that happens because at the end of the day, these runs are some of the best runs I've seen in Villa, but the goals to uh, balls that he's actually received are possibly minimal. Yeah, of course. Um, it, it doesn't matter if he's making these really you know good runs if no one's picking him out because the chance isn't there. As you said about the shackles, mate, the shackles do seem to be on a few players. But do you think Bjarnas and his position allows a bit more freedom for Jack Grealish and, of course, more importantly, Conor Hurahan to link up the play? Uh, yeah, 100%. I think that what he does is he takes those responsibilities that I talked about for the likes of Hurahan to trap back. He he knows that Bjarnason's going to be a few steps behind him, that 
means that he can make up the extra ground and he'll cover the gaps that Grealish will leave when he's in the free roaming number 10 role where he creates the moves and where he advances forwards and then might not be in the best position to track back. I think that you don't get that though with someone like Yedinak because Yedinak is a lot more of a sitting player than Bjornsson. Bjornsson can cover a lot more ground than Yedinak can and it comes down to pace as well and that's a massive point in terms of a central defensive midfielder against it all depends on which side you're playing in in the day, though. And, for example, Bjarnason suits a team that's going to play with a little bit more pace that may look to hit you on the counter, as when Yadnak's better for a team where they're more direct and they're going to be flinging balls up towards the back four where you need to protect their defence ball. That was a big highlight, though, of beating Reading 3-0. And I think it gave us a lot of positivity moving forward, especially on Friday, mate, because Wolves beat Cardiff. Cardiff dropped the ball and they were beaten. It left the, the scramble soon commenced for second place. And I think it gave us about 12 or so hours of hope as Villa fans, because of course we went to Norwich early on a Saturday afternoon. We went down to Norfolk, went to Carrow Road, hoping for three points because the three points, you know, it closes the gap on Cardiff. What were your expectations, expectations, sorry, going into this Norwich match? I had high expectations because Norwich's form at home hasn't been the best this season, to say the least. They've been up and down, up and down for the most of the season, whether that be at home or away. And they struggled against teams that play a direct big front man like QPR and like Fulham, for example. And when they come to Villa when they come to Villa Park, we bullied them with Keenan Davis, who's a big physical striker. So I had the expectations that we'd go in with a similar tactic, but it, it just wasn't, was it? it? It really wasn't. It was the exact polar opposite. Would you say, and I mean, before we go into it, would you say it's probably one of the worst performances of the season? Mm, that, <laughs> we've seen some shower this <laughs> season. We have seen some awful, awful games of football, um, especially towards the start of the campaign and over that dodgy patch just over Christmas. But yes, because the tactics were so stupendously wrong and there's the individual errors to match it as well that you look at it and you go, this doesn't look like a team that's fighting for promotion. It didn't look like it one bit. And a few weeks ago when we were playing on TV um, against trying to remember who it was, but I totally lost my mind, but we looked like the team that was fighting relegation. You know, you, you question a lot about that team selection and the players' aptitude to the game. It reminded me a lot of Villa when they were relegated, when they're just, you start off decently. I can't, you know, I'm not going to knock Villa for the first 20 or so minutes because they did make two big chances through Scott Hogan and they never really found home. And then they didn't make another chance for about 30 or so minutes when Jack Grealish buried like the slightest chance into the corner. And uh, we got shell-shocked by that goal from Josh Murphy. That was a, a stunning, stunning hit. But we can't, you know, I won't, you can't say too much about it because we buried our own good chance. And then we didn't, we, Norwich continued to create, Norwich continued to press. And uh, they really took advantage of us. And I've never seen Villa collapse like that this season. It was, it was so odd just to see them just bottle it. Uh, you know, against Bolton, against QPR, against Hull, those seem, seem tougher games than this. And uh, we seem to just throw it away almost. Yeah, um, you touched there the Bolton game. Bolton was the example where um, Bolton looked like the team chasing promotion. We didn't have any fights. Um, against Hull, we battered them in the first half, created so many chances. 
Wednesday to the second half and we did jack all. You know, we didn't create a chance in the second half. And then Reading was a shining example of us trying to correct things, as we've had to do so many times this season. And against Norwich, we're 2-0 down. Fair enough, Murphy's goal. You don't stop that. You know, there's not much anyone can do. You could argue Neil Taylor could do a little bit more, but possibly not. And then it's 2-0. Grealish gets that goal and you think there's a bit of momentum finally and we start to find our feet. And we've had the chances previous to that. But but no, it wasn't to be. Five minutes later, Madison goes down the other end and scores. And you look at it and you go, the changes were bizarre. And they didn't impact the game at all. They They didn't help where we're at and that was a major problem for me is the fact that we had that position to get back into it but we blew it with the substitutes we, we seem to have some major problems and again I'll go back to Josh Murphy's goal it was stupendous it was world class it was one of the best finishes you'll probably see all season but we we buried an equally hard chance through Jack Grealish you know we equaled that and then you've got the two other goals to compete with that we have no answer for. And those are the, those frustrating chances. And those are the chances we should be making. And it's just so annoying. And I think I'll give big plaudits actually to John Terry in the first half because he probably saved us from going two or three under. And But it fell apart. You know, there's no, there's probably no man in that second half who escapes with any, any recognition for, for being decent. I think, and I don't want to be too harsh on the fullbacks, but Al Mohamedi and Neil Taylor looked like they'd been in a car crash at halftime. It was, I'm not sure what I, if Bruce told them to push up, it was the, probably the worst idea because it only left us with two men at the back. And uh, we really struggled. I, I can't believe the scoreline wasn't higher for Norwich because they dominated us. Yeah, I think that the one vulnerability we've known with our fullbacks this season is that there's no pace to them either. And that's a major problem when you look at the pace that Norwich have got with Murphy, with Madison, with Varanich. Those players can exploit you and they did. Their link-up play was superb and that just exposed Al Hamadi when he pushed too high and Neil Taylor who looked so out of sorts. And I must say he has done for a while now. I, I did back him uh, in his first run of the season before getting injured. I think it was the send-off even. Um, and then just yesterday, as you touched on there, they were playing so high up at times that it left everyone else so exposed. Yeah, it was the formation in the second half. We had like two at the back, five just muddling around in the middle. And we, of course, again, it's a strikers that we bring on. We bring on Codger and Graben for a, a Domer and Snodgrass. And then suddenly we've got three people playing up front, five people not sure where what their ability is or what where the instructions are in the middle and just two people at the back. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, we're all here for attacking football, but uh, we had no shape, nothing. And it really does make me worry about Steve Bruce because, I mean, credit to him for some of the things he's done this season. But there's been three separate points now where people have wanted him out. We've got the start of the season. We've got Boxing Day against Brentford and we've got now. And I don't know how a manager gets through it like Steve Bruce does because if it was Remy Guard, he'd be gone. And I'm not saying sack him because sacking him now, would be, it's stupid and it's unrealistic. It's, he has a season. It's a, you know, he has a season. But we don't have this conversation about another manager. Do we? It's it's mad. No, it's it's plain ridiculous that there seems no backup plan at this football club at the moment in terms of tactics. As daft as it sounds, on the turn, if if the game's getting away from us, where's the tactics change? Where's the change in formation? Where's the let's drop to a three four three or let's drop to playing a four five one, not a four four one one as I'd argue we're playing now. Let's try something different where players are told to do something different instead of the plans we've got. And in turn with that, why are the substitutions so 
ludicrous because you're replacing two wingers with two strikers. I can't get over how that's that's logical because where's the creativity from? Yeah, it's, it's mind-boggling because I don't know. Do you go free at the back? Do you try and shore stuff up so we can push up? I don't know, but we have the options there to change games and we never do it. We seem to almost go put more strikers on and we'll score. Bolton was the worst example when we had Hepburn, Murphy, Hogan, Graben, all of them on the pitch at the same time. And it was uh, it was bizarre. And we, we, we seem to do that all the time. We, yeah, it might have worked against QPR when we put all our strikers on and went for it really late and actually got a goal back. But since then, it seems to have been the only go-to plan. And it's bizarre. And again, I think we go back to rotation, mate. Fans can say whatever they want. Yeah, we can we can vouch for keeping the same lineup because we're fans. But if you're a manager and you've admitted a mistake, you know, we lost that QPR game because we didn't rotate after busting a gut against Wolves. And again, we haven't rotated after a midweek match or a match that's come soon or recently. And we don't rotate. The players look knackered. Then we don't have any ideas. And we're certainly trounced by a team. Again, we lost 3-1 against QPR. And we've just lost 3-1 against Norwich. And the exact same thing has happened. And it might be too late to learn now, which is worrying. Well, I think anyone worth his stock can look at, look at Norwich's highlights from their losses against QPR and Fulham and tell you one thing. And it's that... They're back for Hanley, Closer, Pinto, whoever else you want to chuck in there. They cannot deal with big physical strikers. Lewis Graben is a big physical striker. Keenan Davis is a big physical striker. I'd argue even Codger's a big physical striker in comparison to Hogan. Yet, which is the man that starts up top? There seems no reactivity to the other team's tactics. It seems to be, oh, this worked last game. We'll go with it again. And against, you know, a manager like Daniel Farker, he's had, he's had a rough time at Norwich they haven't they've been underperforming they've changed ideas they haven't really found their flow but they certainly if there's one thing they found against Villa it's their flow they found they seem to have locked onto something now and it seems like we play smart managers all the time who haven't got the best jobs you know the Norwich job isn't great they're a team that's cutting budgets they're not spending much it seems that Steve Bruce has got this job and this squad should be like third or fourth by default the manager should be able to push them up to second or first and we seem to be really underperforming now, and that's a worry. I mean, I don't worry too much about it going into the playoffs. I, you know, he's done it at Hull twice with the Saints. He's had a slump at this time. But I, I, see, I just look at our squad and I think we've got second in us. Cardiff are, it's, it's, it's amazing how Cardiff are second and we're not. We've Neil Warnock as well as manager. It's, it's, it's insane because their squad is an Apache on ours. And yet you look at them and they're fighting for second place, automatic promotion, and they were fighting for the title up to uh, Friday. It's, it's, it's maddening, isn't it? Well, it's, it's plain ridiculous. I'll put my neck on the line and say it here that Steve Bruce, if this was any other club with this squad, he'd be sacked. You wouldn't have those runs that we've had. Um, it might sound ludicrous to say it, but you look at the amount we've spent, and I know there's all that, oh, there's no given right, divine right to be top two. With the money that we spent, you'd think that there's not a divine right. It's a matter of if and when you are in the top two, because they should be with those players. No, no doubt about it. That Norwich match, mate. Um, there's not more much more I can say about it except it's uh, really disappointing, and it will be even more so disappointing if we in in Tuesday on Tuesday when we play Cardiff. If we beat Cardiff, we'll be wondering what could have been. Because you, the Plus is a complete lottery, and uh, I have every faith that we'll see the summer right up into the Premier League. 
but really, really maddening how uh, we had the chance to perform. And yeah, Fulham were ahead of us, but at least make the argument, and we didn't. Yeah, it's everything that would sum up Villa as if we win. It would be typical Aston Villa for us to win the next game. And you think of what could have been, and we are playing for position now in the playoffs. I think it's as simple as that. And you're hoping for the best remuneration in terms of where we end up. And it's been Villa's thing all season. When we've had that position to take advantage and sort of apply more pressure on the team above us, we've never took it. We've always been in the chasing pack. We've never, it's never been in our hands from day one. And we've always known that. And I think that it's just that glimmer of hope we're always given that we were going to be back within a real shape of it rather than a chasing pack. And we've always had that blown from us. And it's just disappointment, I guess. It's uh, also made a bit more disappointing by the fact that this squad is genuinely really, really good. And it's probably one of the better squads in terms of just team spirit and stuff, all the stuff you see on Instagram. It's one of the better squads we've had. And of course, playing ability, one of the better squads we've had in years. And it's going to fall apart if we're not promoted because of course it's going to be picked apart by Premier League clubs or teams looking to get promoted next season because we've got to meet our you know we've got to meet our margins with this financial fair play so it's just going to be a real shame that we haven't been able to capitalize on the best Villa squad in years and that's another frustrating thing it does it, it leaves you wondering what might have been as you touched on there and I look at that squad and going through it now realistically there's about five of those players that are in that starting lineup including Johnston and Snod... Well, if you exclude Johnston and Snodgrass, I'd argue there's five players that get picked up by a Premier League team quite easily. You go through it, Johnston, obviously not Villas, Snodgrass, not Villas, Chester, could easily get a Premier League move if you wanted one. Greenish, just as much the same. I'd argue Adoma could get that Premier League move. I think Hurahan is the sort of player someone like Watford would come and pick up. So before you know it, you're five players down. And you're stuck with Hogan and Kodja, who you know who could make that move as well. And then you go to seven, and you look: is anyone going to come in for Andre Green or Keenan Davis? Then that, then it gets worrying. It does, and then you start from the basics again, and that's when you end up in a position that Norwich are in. They lost one of the Murphy brothers last summer. I think that was unthinkable to many Norwich fans to lose one of the Murphy brothers last summer, and that's what happened. I always get them confused, but obviously one of them ended up at Newcastle um, for like shy of £15 million. And it's unthinkable that Villa could go back. We'd be back four or five stones. And once you're rebuilding again, obviously gives the chance for the youth to come into it. But then you can't help but feel that it's a huge missed opportunity. And it comes down to tactics and obviously a little bit about players because... Let's face it, they've not taken their opportunities this season. We've missed so many chances and we've just let ourselves down. Yeah, I think we, I think we really have. But the uh, it's there to perform against Cardiff. And I think the, the very least is we see the season out well. We go into the playoffs with a, a renewed set of optimism and hopefully get into the Premier League. We got Cardiff on Tuesday, mate. Neil Warnock, um, there's a lot to say about this man. And I think I've made my thoughts clear on Twitter and through many articles. But he didn't uh, do himself much justice on Friday, did he? After a uh, real confrontation with uh, Wolves coach Nuno Espirito Santo. It was argued that he didn't have a handshake or anything. And you can see Neil Warnock on camera telling him to F off very loudly. It's it's comedy gold, to be honest, from Neil Warnock. Um, I don't think that Nuno's himself across the best this season by any means the way he reacted was of course going to piss off 
Neil Warnock, for a better turn of phrase. Um, but Neil Warnock's hardly shining, is he, with the best sort of reputation. So I, I don't think he's one to talk. I think he had a point about respect, but then on so many occasions you've seen Neil Warnock behave in mannerisms that you wouldn't expect of a professional football manager. So I don't think he he should be the one that can tell Nuno what he can and can't do after a game. I think uh, telling him to F off twice loudly on a Sky Sports camera is perhaps uh, a bit more lacking in class and respect than uh, not a handshake or uh, loud celebrations. I think, uh, and of course, you've got the classic Neil Warnock at Sheffield United when uh, against West Brom, that famous match that was abandoned, when he got three players sent off and demanded that two of his players lie down injured so the match was called off. And... uh, (laughs) It's a it's a Neil Warnock for you. Of course, we've got our our own clashes with him when he uh, had a go at Jack Grealish uh, last season for quote unquote trying to get players carded, and I don't think that's Jack Grealish's game really. But yeah, uh, he's going to come to Villa Park, and uh, hopefully we're going to turn him over. <laughs> hopefully we're going to turn this Cardiff side over and really call into question their uh, automatic promotion credentials. I don't think much of Cardiff side, and uh, that sounds really insulting. But it's not that they really are overperforming. I think Gabby Bonhoeffer would would get into their their lineup, and uh, what he's done there is uh, it's nothing short of a miracle to be pushing for that second place, especially to be demanding that Fulham step up their game to catch them. Yeah, if you look at it, there's a lot of write-offs in there. No disrespect, Junior Hoylet, um, Jazz Richards, another example, Anthony Pilkington. All these players are write-offs from other clubs. So I think. The one player that's the real one to watch who I really do like as a player is Nathaniel Mendes-Lang. He's made a huge step up and he's delivered in abundance for them this season at times. And there's nothing but respect for the way he's gone about his business for Cardiff this season. And I think no one stumbled on a gem with that one. But other than that, it's just down to motivation that they are where they are. How are they doing this? I'll ask you the question. I've tried to answer with Danny over the course of many podcasts. I don't know how they're doing this. I'll be completely blunt because Fulham are probably the best side in the in the league, and you know they they are where they are because they didn't kick on early enough. Wolves are great, of course. Then you've got Villa, who should be about there, and but yet we're seeing Cardiff potentially go up, and I have no idea how they're doing it. They're the worst passing team, worst team in possession, everything that you think should make a good football team. They're not get their second it's down to the age-old point here that they get themselves in the right positions it's as simple as that if you put yourself in those positions you'll score goals and I think they've got a very clever manager um he's of the same ilk as Steve Bruce but he seems to be Neil Warlock's got one one up on him this season and he is the promotion expert and he's got the best of those players sinking out the same hymn sheet and that's something that I don't think Villa's had at large parts this season they've not been singing off the same hymn sheet and we've let a lot of people down with that in comparison to Cardiff where they've got nobody to let down there's no expectation of that team I think it's it's going to be difficult for Villa and I think Neil a lot of credit must go to Neil Warlock for what he's done because that side, side shouldn't be higher than about 7th and I think a lot of credit must go to him for doing his job as a manager and getting that team overperforming. Yet, I, you know, there's something about him and I think Villa should should beat them. Villa have just got so much quality and I want to see Villa come out to this sore after that Irish game. I want to see them give out a massive statement. And yeah, it's not going to be enough to get automatic promotion, but I want to see them still come out, perform, turn Cardiff over and get on with the season. Uh, what do you want to see from Villa in this one? Um, I want to see the shackles off. It seems to be the cliche word with Aston Villa. But I do think that we need to see them attack 
and to keep attacking and be brave on the ball for once because we don't know what this Cardiff team's like if you attack them. We don't know because just nobody seems to actually do that this season. They seem to have started to think that they're some sort of like Manchester City when they're really not. And it'd be nice to see us go out there, play some expressive football. And I think we do need to start with a 4-4-2 formation. And I would go with Keane and Davis at the top because he's the man that can go against their defensive backline that's got a lot of physical presence. The likes of Sol Bamba, for example, and Sean Morrison, they're big physical defenders. And we can't expect Scott Hogan to go up against them and win the ball every time. Do you expect to see Mila Jedernak put in for Bjerke Bjarnason in this one? It, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, and I think possibly it could be the right move to do because Cardiff have got that big physical presence that I talk about again up front. And that's something that previously we haven't dealt with. Um, the likes of Zahor, who's got a lot of about him. And I think Jedernak's the better man for the job because he protects their back line. And he prevents it from getting to the point where it's just uh, Chester and John Terry trying to defend the long ball forward because it's inevitable that they're going to ping the ball forward and play off Zahor, for example. Yeah, I think we're just all hoping for something a little bit more better against Cardiff than what we saw against Norwich. But on a final note, mate, we'll discuss a little bit on Steve Bruce. It's been really mixed because there's at times when you could say, yeah, he's the best Villa manager there's been in 10, 15 years. Then you get the streak, the streak ends and the doom and gloom comes out and things look genuinely really bad. And they have done, as I've said, three times this season, we've had points where people have called for his head. Now there's a bit of unrest again. And we've seen a few times when the tactics haven't been great, when the substitutions have been even worse. So I just want your bottom line on Steve Bruce now. What, are, what is the thoughts on him as we head into this just end close stage of the season? I'll always back any manager, but it doesn't mean I quite like them. Is <laughs> one way to put it. Um, I think he's underperformed this season. I think he's let himself down. Um, I think that at times his tactics have been poor for a man that's supposedly a seasoned professional. Um, I think that the way he's supposedly man-managed this side has supposedly been excellent, but why aren't they singing off the same hymn sheet? Why is that? Why have they gone into this position where there's no fight in a team, considering there's supposedly such good camaraderie? We've not seen it at times this season. That falls on his head, to be honest. And, he should be doing a lot better with the resources we've got. And I know he's come up with the excuses about injuries and whatever, but there's still enough in that squad to be top two. I completely agree with you, Matt. I think you've uh, hit some hit the nail on the head. We should be doing so much better. And I think we'll still we'll be with Bruce if he takes us up in the uh, playoffs. And then we'll see what the real making of him is when he's given the budget. You know, he's had the budget. But when he's given the Premier League budget, when he's given the mandate, we'll see what he does with the uh, job he's given. But I can't see ending well unfortunately but yeah Matt this ended well thank you very much for coming on to the podcast today mate I think you've uh, hit some you know made some really good points I think it's it's been a good discussion as well and uh, yeah where can people find your work mate at the moment um, a lot of it's just I'll tweet it out so if you really want to follow me you can do at Matt Lynch on Twitter double Y and Lynch and yeah it's been an absolute pleasure to be honest so thank you for having me no problem, man. Uh, we'll catch you guys soon uh, with a preview of the Leeds match. We'll be speaking to John McKenzie after the Cardiff match. We don't want to make it too complicated. So uh, stick with us. If you liked it, uh, like, subscribe, do all the usual things and uh, keep in touch. I think we'll be happy to speak to you at 7500 Toll at Gemma Rushton. Keep tuned and we'll see you next Sunday. Goodbye, folks. Bye.